Welcome to Mach 10 Sports this October 26, 2023 episode. I appreciate you joining us. Week 9 is here. It's a little bit of a light slate. I know some people try to make, oh, there is no light slate. Well, from a number standpoint, it's a little lighter slate here. We still got four teams on bye weeks in the league this week. Alabama and LSU, Arkansas, Missouri, all four on buys. But this is the last week of the season that we'll have bye weeks. Everybody else will be back in action after this. We have five matchups to break down this week with some sneaky games for some teams like Georgia and Tennessee. Still, Georgia, I know it's a big rivalry game. We'll talk about that here in a minute with Steve Spurrier and Brandon Spikes. But Georgia knows it's a big, big game. It's Georgia, Florida, Florida, Georgia, whatever, whatever way you want to go. I usually say Georgia, Florida. Could be a sneaky game for Georgia if they don't come to play. Tennessee, do they get off the mat heading to Lexington, playing at Kroger Field this week? Do they get off the mat? Play well. Do they play like the first half against Alabama and Tuscaloosa? Or do they play like the second half in Tuscaloosa? A lot to unfold there. We're also unfortunately getting into a little bit of a tap out season. And what I mean by that teams, the teams that are struggling, do players start checking out a little bit? I.e., South Carolina. Things aren't looking great. It's gonna be tough to make it to a bowl game. Just getting six, seven wins doesn't mean as much anymore. It, it just is what it is. It's not a slight to the kids or not. It's just Playing in the Independence Bowl, Birmingham Bowl, Music City Bowl isn't what it used to be. Those extra 15 practices don't mean as much because you don't really get a lot of your players back anymore. So going to a bowl game isn't as meaningful as it used to. Coaches, players will tell you it is, but come on. It's not. That doesn't mean we're not watching. We're still going to love. We're still going to tune in December just like everybody else on December 18th through, dang, the, to the national championship game in January 8th or 9th. But. Before we get to those matchups, while this will primarily be a football-heavy episode, we're getting into basketball season. We're about a, a week and a half out from basketball season, November 6th. And Joe Lenardi, Joey Brackets, ESPN's Bracketologist, released his, I think, his final preseason Bracketology heading into the 23-24 season. We'll discuss all that. But you know what we do? We also oh, – Sorry, before we move on a little, we're going we're gonna to talk a little money-making weekend, give you my gambling picks. Again, we're under 45%. We're at 44%. The goal is to be above 55%. We've had three, two losing weeks in a row. That's got to change this week. I have about 10 bets I like. I'm going to add probably some tomorrow, but the ones I like today, let's see. We got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We got eight that I'm fired up about. We're going to go eight and no. Again, may have lost a little money, but stick with us. Stick with us. To bounce back, we hit a little mid-season slide. But hey, we're going to finish strong. But as you know, like we always do, starting around the SEC, got a, got a lot to cover covering around the SEC in this one. LSU's injuries. Let's start off first. Brian Kelly mentioned defensive tackle Makai Wingo, who wears the established 18 jersey for LSU this year. Him and corner Zai Alexander are both questionable next week in Tuscaloosa. I'm hearing a little bit Makai Wingo could this could be long season this, or this could be end of the year. This could be a groin, lower body extremity type injury where he could be out for the year. I've heard that. Not ready to go on record. So don't if he plays against Alabama, don't be like I told you, my ten. I told you. No, no. I'm I'm just saying from what I've heard, sources I trust. Wouldn't shock me if he's out. He's on the shelf for the rest of the season. Alexander's out. We're gonna be playing about two or three true freshmen for LSU here in the secondary heading into Bryant Denny Stadium. Not ideal. Maybe they got like Sage Ryan 
Guys played a lot of football, limited athletically. I think he's going to have to travel. They're going to have to put some of those freshmen on their on LSU sidelines so they can tell them, hey, certain plays and stuff. It's nothing against the freshmen. That's just how it works. Like, put them in a comfort zone. Hey, he's closer to our sideline. We can talk to him a little bit. Sage Ryan, who people have been on, the nickelback, limited corner, he's going to be the one that's probably going to have to travel for him. So this is big news. This is big news. If both Makai Wingo and Zion Alexander are both questionable next week, could smell trouble because remember, Denver Harris. Still not with the team. Deuce Chestnut, still not with the team, Brian Kelly says. LSU could be really thin. LSU could be – is. I think they are going to be really thin in the secondary rolling into Tuscaloosa next week. So that's massive. Then Makai Wingo has been the most consistent defensive tackle of the year. He's been out three or four weeks. I mean, he's one of those guys that doesn't have to practice. So it's not that big of a deal. From what I'm hearing, he may be out for the year. Speaking of the Florida-Georgia game, Steve Spurrier and Brandon Spikes talked to the Florida team about the Georgia rivalry and what it means – Billy Napier, baby, going into the deep pockets to bring up. Hey, we got to talk to the guy. Steve Spurrier only only lost to Georgia once in his entire career at Florida. I think Brandon Spikes maybe lost once in 07. But here's a quote from Shamar James, linebacker for Florida, talking about Brandon Spikes. He hates the dogs. It's just pure hate with him and the dogs, and that's what he instilled in us. Seriously, back in that day, it was pure hatred. I don't know about that anymore. They're trying to build it back up. I mean, Georgia hadn't lost this game since, what, 2020? So they have a two-game winning streak. But, man, when Urban Meyer was there, Mark Rick, Stafford, Oshawa Moreno, Tebow, Brandon Spikes, Jeffrey Demskin, those teams did not like each other. This is why I like about this rivalry. I think this is one of the cooler rivalries in college football. I know some people want to go home and home. Kirby Smart himself. I like it in Jacksonville, though, man. I, I like these neutral sites. This is kind of the southeastern version of the Cotton Bowl between Oklahoma and Texas. It's just my two cents. I like it here. I understand from a recruiting standpoint, hurts Georgia and Florida's home schedules at times when they're not there. But I, but I like it. I'll be honest with you. Another injury update, cornerback Kamal Hayden for Tennessee, out for the year with a shoulder injury. He sustained against Isaiah Bond on the sideline, if you remember that, last week. He went out for a little bit. He's out for the year, shoulder injury. Tennessee's not overly thin back there, but they got a bunch of older guys around near as thin as LSU. But that is a season-ending injury for the Vols. And then before we get to basketball, Nick Saban, on the hesitancy behind communicators in the helmet. Uh, let me share the screen here for you. just want to bring up this exact quote for Nick Saban. Here it is. So if you look historically, this is a quote from Saban today on Pat McAfee's show about putting speakers that they do in the NFL and the college players' helmets so this sign stealing can go away. He says, if you look historically – You'll know that there were reasons that they, he's talking about the NFL, changed the rules so you couldn't do that. He's talking about stealing signs. Then they come with the microphone and the helmet, whatever they want to call it, and there was no sign stealing. There was no signs because it was just communication, which I think we would solve a lot of the problems if we would just do the same in college football. He says there's no reason to do that. There's no reason that you just can't tell the quarterback what the play is rather than having signs and signals and three people signaling in and all that stuff to try to get the play, which is more difficult for the players, incidentally, because they all get to they all got to get the sign because everybody's gone no huddle. Yeah, I mean, Saban's right from that perspective. He is, but also you got to think he's not a big no huddle guy, so he's got a little agenda in it. He's got a little agenda. There's nothing wrong with that. He also understands that's how a lot of teams don't huddle in college football, and he's aware of that. A lot of teams don't huddle in college football. So that would limit them. That would hurt those teams right there. Um, and he kind of knows that. I mean, he's always kind of been against the no huddle. Uh, he likes huddling. He likes the execution, mano e mano, rather than the quick stuff, trying to get people 
added gaps and stuff like that. Nick Saban's never been a big fan of that, even going back to his days, even going back like when Gus Malzahn got to Auburn quickly. But um, just wanted to bring that up, but I think the thing Nick's missing is, or Coach Saban's missing is, the teams, I'm not going to use the budget when we talked about that a little bit, but the teams that signal in are going to be screwed a little bit because not everybody huddles. So you would be almost forcing teams to huddle when they don't want to do that. I mean, think about Tennessee. They don't huddle much. I mean, you'd be forcing teams to do stuff they don't really want to. So it's kind of one side way of thinking. It's just not as simple as everybody just put microphones in their helmets. I'm with him. I think ultimately we get to that when everybody's on the same budget, doing the same things. And honestly, if you could afford it now. Why not? Why not? But. Yeah, I think it's a little bit – that's just a surface level just to say put a head a speaker in everybody's helmet. That would adjust a lot of offenses in their communication and getting in signals. Because, like I said, it all comes down to a lot of these teams don't huddle and they do get signals in quickly to different position groups, whether the offensive line, receivers. Some of these calls are really long. So, I think it's a little bit different than just, hey, simple file, let's just put, speaker, let's put speakers in the helmets and there we got it. It's over. Simple as that. I don't think it's that simple. Again – Teams that don't the teams that don't huddle would be at a disadvantage. But again, Nick Saban's always been a he, he doesn't really care about that, so it doesn't really matter. But moving to basketball, so update is Kentucky's Croatian big man Zion Vamir Ivasic is not eligible is not quite eligible heading into the season right now according to NCAA. But he's not the only one either. Texas A&M forward Julius Marble not permitted to participate in team activities due to a university process that is ongoing for head coach Buzz Williams or made right now in release. Williams said he could not give specifics about the situation. Uh, that'd be big. I mean, A&M's got, what, four starters back? That'd be big for them. They are From a negative standpoint, to lose Julius Marble, who does is a great rebounder, true old-school low-post guy, so that could be a loss for both Kentucky and A&M. But I mentioned, before we move into the week, Nine preview schedule. Joe Lenardi brought up his last, I'm assuming, probably um, bracketology for the season starts on November 6th. I'm going to pull up. He's got eight SEC teams in this, which is tied for first out of any conference with the Big Ten. No teams on the bubble, but he does have, as you can see on the left side, the South region here. Kentucky is a five seed right here. Highlighted in red, you got Tennessee is the highest seed in the SEC coming in as a two. He's got them winning the SEC. Mississippi State getting another tournament appearance. I think that I think that's possible. I think that should happen too. Is an eight seed. Arkansas coming in as a four seed. Florida coming in as a ten seed. Auburn a seven seed. Future SEC team Texas in is a three seed. Texas A and M. We just talked about him with Julius Marble. Four seed. Going on up. And we got Alabama as a four seed over here. Now, disregard the matchups. That's eight. There's the conference breakdown for you. Eight SEC teams tied with the Big Ten. It's impressive. And I talk to people. I mean, I I feel really good about the SEC getting about eight teams in the tournament. Seven for sure. Seven for sure. I mean, I think Arkansas, Alabama, Kentucky, Texas A&M, Auburn, Mississippi State, and who am I missing? Who am I missing here? Seven teams, in my opinion, should be in. If they don't, they should be severely disappointed. I'm going to go Tennessee, Arkansas, A&M, Alabama, Auburn, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and, uh, and Mississippi State should all get in. I, I would be shocked if those teams were not in. Really, Florida is the one that's kind of the swing team. 
Florida's kind of the swing team. Because, again, like I mentioned, I'm writing now, Alabama, Arkansas, Auburn, Mississippi State, Kentucky, A&M, Tennessee. All seven of those teams should be in the tournament, in my opinion. It would be a failure of a year if they did not make the NCAA tournament. And, again, we have our basketball preview coming up on Monday night. We have Max Barr from Southeastern 14 come help us preview the SEC. The SEC will tip off a week after that, like I said, on November 6th. But the swing team to me, and they beat Miami in a scrimmage. It's just a scrimmage, I know. But Miami was a Final Four team last year. Florida's brought in some good transfers. They got Riley Kugel back. They should be pretty good this year. Florida should make the tournament in Todd Golden's second season. But I'd be a little surprised if the SEC didn't get, did not get seven. Just wanted to go over Joey Brackett's, Joe Lenardi's last bracketology, as you can see, came out a couple of days ago on Tuesday before the tar- before the regular season starts in about a week. We're going to go over where the SEC stood from that perspective. Remember, eight teams he has in leads the, leads the country, leads the country right now. SEC, man, it's starting to get good in basketball. It's starting to get fun again. Like John Calipari said, at SEC Media, it's because these administrations are starting to invest in full in basketball. I mean, look at Georgia. Georgia got Asa Newell. They could get the Reed kid. That's two big, highly profiled kids they're going to get. Georgia should always be good in basketball, and they should always be good in baseball. I tweeted about it yesterday. But even Georgia is starting to pony up from an NIL perspective. Teams are starting to realize you can be good in football and you can be good at basketball at the same time. Georgia's starting to learn that. They've obviously been good in football for the past five or six years. You can be good at basketball at the same time, too. The league's starting to pick up. Man, it's just a fun league. They have a lot of good players across the board. I mean, NBA opening night, you see a ton of SEC teams littered on. Who was I watching yesterday? Uh, it was the Spurs. I saw Grant Williams from Tennessee on. Brandon Miller for the Charlotte Hornets. I mean, the league's loaded. NBA's loaded with former SEC players. But let's get to it. Let's the week. Nine preview. Let's share the schedule with you. I'm actually really excited about this week. I'm really excited about this week. There's going to be – could be some real surprises, but here's the week nine slate. We got the 11 a.m. Central Standard Time kick on ESPN, South Carolina at A&M, the 2.30 CBS game. We're getting limited on our SEC CBS matchups. Remember, last year for they moved to the Big Ten for the world's largest cocktail party in Jacksonville, Georgia, Florida, CBS at 2.30, also at 2.30 on the SEC Network. I mean, maybe the lowest scoring game in college football this year. Mississippi State at Auburn on the SEC Network. 6 p.m. Central Standard Time Zone, Tennessee at Kentucky on ESPN. And then 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time Zone, Vanderbilt at Ole Miss. The SEC Network night game. Before we can really dive in, let's look at the standings heading into week nine. Here we are right here. Here we are. Here where we stand going into week nine. The SEC East, Georgia obviously 7-0, 4-0 right now. Missouri still controls their own destiny on a bye week this week, but 7-1, 3-1. They go to Athens next week. Florida, 5-2, 3-1. Control their own destiny. They still get Missouri and Georgia. Still get Missouri and Georgia. Kentucky's already dropped two for them. That's Florida's only loss, but 5-2, 3-1. Kentucky, 5-2, 2-2. Tennessee five and two, two and two. South Carolina two and five, one and four. And Vanderbilt two and six, zero oh and four. Moving to the West, Alabama sitting there at seven and one overall, five and zero oh atop the SEC West. LSU sitting there at six and two overall, four and one. Remember LSU opened the year against Florida State with a loss, but they're four and one. Still control their own destiny in the SEC West. Ole Miss, the interesting team here. 
not really talked about nationally, but they're creeping up. They're six and one, three and one overall. They still need Alabama to lose two games. They still need Alabama to lose two games. So they're a big LSU fan next week, and they got to take care of their own business. Can't afford another loss. They got Bandy this week, AM at home next week, and they go to Athens for the big one. Maybe an outside shot, even if they don't win the West, to maybe get in the playoffs. They'd have to finish 11 and one, obviously. So that, that, that may be a stretch this year. But yet, Texas AM, four and three overall, two and two. Mississippi State, four and three, one and three. Auburn three and four, zero oh and four, and Arkansas two and six, zero oh and five. So we still got a lot of division shakeups. Obviously, Georgia, Missouri next week—that's a big one. Alabama, LSU next week—that's a big one. So we're gonna have some real divisional, some games that determine some division outcomes starting next week. And again, Florida say they did what a lot of people think they can't do this week. They win. They control their own destiny. They still go to Missouri here in about three weeks. We still got a lot, a lot of things to figure out here in the SEC. A lot of things to figure out in the SEC. But let's get to it. First game. South Carolina at Texas A&M, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time Zone on ESPN. A&M currently a 14 and a half point favorite heading into this one. Let's set the tone for you here. South Carolina coming in at two and five, one and four. We just mentioned Texas A&M comes in four and three. Two and two. Big game for both teams, but for different reasons. I mean, obviously a bigger one for Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M. If he loses this game, he might as well start calling the moving company. Start packing the house. Same with the Mississippi State game in a couple weeks. If they lose to Mississippi State or South Carolina at home, it's over. No Moss, Roberto Duran, call the packing company. He's gone. It is what it is. Call a spade a spade. He's got to win this game. South Carolina, on the other hand, just running out of games to get to six wins in Shane Beamer's third year. They lose this. It's going to be tough. I just want to pull up South Carolina's quick schedule for you real fast just so I can show you. I mean, it's, it's not insurmountable or anything. It's just it's going to be tough. It would be tough for them to win. I mean, they're going to win out. Flip it. Here we go. All right, so there's the remaining part of their schedule here. They need four. They got what? Two wins right now. If they lose this weekend, they got to win out to week the six. They have Jacksonville State coming to town next week. Solid team. They lose this. South Carolina could fall asleep and lose to Jacksonville State if they play really bad. They could. They really could. Their offensive line's that bad. We'll talk about that in a minute. Vanderbilt at home, they could win that. But what's the what's the psyche at that point? Kentucky at home, probably not going to be favored in that one. Clemson at home, probably not going to be favored in that one. But, I mean, they're all winnable. But what's the team's mindset? And, again, do they really – give a crap about going to the Belk Bowl down the street in Charlotte. I, I'm not trying to be like, all oh, college people don't care about bowl games. Coswell said, no, absolutely not. Look at the views. I'm just being a spade, or I'm just calling a spade a spade here. Being a spade. Calling a spade a spade here. Uh, six and six isn't what it used to be. It's not like, hey, guys, let's go get these 15 extra practices in. Let's send the seniors out the right way. Let's develop the guys that are coming back, and let's take some momentum into the offseason. You're going to have a whole new team. So, I'm not saying AM really needs this one because I don't think a lot of people expect them to win, myself included. But they don't need to go get embarrassed. They don't need to go get embarrassed. Um, but wh- wh- where is South Carolina better at in this game in any matchup? Add in, they will most likely be without their best two receivers as Juice Williams is still hurt. And Xavier Leggett got hurt. He's out. He's most likely going to be questionable. I mean, if, if you hear Shane Beamer say someone's questionable, he's probably out. Uh, quarterback is probably the only position I would say they have the edge at with Spencer Rattler. But where is the confidence level at in that entire building right now? I don't see a lot. 
this has been a program that has struggled significantly on, on the road under Shane Beamer. They've not held many Power 5 teams under 30 points in his time in South Carolina. They just had Word is they may be letting uh, – don't want to say too much. Uh, somebody else call plays this week. Sounds like there may be a new defensive coordinator um, dabbling in some stuff. It wouldn't shock me if South Carolina makes a change on the defensive side of the ball this year. But, again, very weird cross-divisional game that the Yankees have dominated outside of the last few seasons. I mean, remember these two teams played each other, they're the common cross-division rival every year. When I was at AM, we always talk about, like, why is this the cross-division rivalry? Why, why, why didn't they keep AM Missouri? At least they were familiar with the Big 12. I always thought this one was weird. I mean, they're the two farthest teams in the SEC away from each other. It's a very weird, weird cross-divisional game that AM or South Carolina finally won the game in this series last week, last year. But where this game will be won, Texas A&M's defensive, for Texas A&M, Texas A&M's defensive line versus South Carolina's offensive line. Massive matchup advantage, advantage for A&M. A&M leads the country in sacks with 29. South Carolina comes in at 125th in sacks allowed. They've given up 31. South Carolina has also beat the crap right now at that position. The Gamecocks have not just been bitten by injuries. They've been mauled, dude. It's, it's been bad especially on the offensive line, like I mentioned, since the spring, listen to this, South Carolina has lost 10 offensive linemen to injuries, seven of whom were scholarship players. I don't know many teams that get over that. I mean, some tight ends this week, Shane Beamer said, it had to move over to get some help from a body standpoint on the offensive line just so they can practice. Now, A&M has their own issues, but getting in the backfield and affecting the quarterback has not been one for them this year. It's a massive advantage for A&M. I think it continues this week. For South Carolina, where can this game be won? It starts with your gunslinger, Spencer Rattler. Spencer Rattler always gives you a chance, right? Right? Going back to the Tennessee-Clemson games last year, and he's played well this year. But he'll be running for his life, most likely without his best weapon on the outside. But Spencer Rattler does find ways at times to create. And Texas A&M secondaries, we've seen this year, they can be had. They can be gotten, as some people say. Does he rely on the true freshman track star freak Nicholas Harbour on the outside? Maybe. He played well last week in the Missouri game, one of the few people. Maybe that's a weapon. Just don't see a lot of matchup advantages for South Carolina in this one, outside of just having the better quarterback. While that's important, just between the offensive line being injured, looking like a mass unit, your top two receivers are out. I just don't know if he has a lot of help around him. But prediction. Look, I always talk about a path to victory for every team. But outside of Spencer Rattler, I see zero path to victory here for South Carolina especially when you factor in the positions around him and where they currently are from a development standpoint, an injury standpoint. Where, where does the help come to help Spencer Rattler? Now, this most likely will be a lazy 11 a.m. environment, not a shot at Texas A&M, but 11 a.m. games, in my opinion, has always benefited the road team from an upset standpoint. Texas A&M coming off a of bye week. Can they get the ground game going with Le'Veon Moss? I think they will. The AM offensive line has struggled running the football in their last two games, but South Carolina's defensive line is not in the same tier as Alabama and Tennessee's in regard to rushing defenses. On the other side, the Gamecocks defensive line doesn't have a lot of get off. They struggle to protect their linebackers, and the Aggies' offensive line has a size advantage against a group that's neither big or athletic. The, the South Carolina defensive line is not big or athletic. Not near of what A&M's seen the last two games, like I said, with Alabama or Tennessee. Add in, this is a poor tackling team, the second and third levels for the Gamecocks, and I see A&M doing what they want through the air. A&M starts to pull away before the half. I, could, I see that. It picks up right where they left off 
after the half, pulling away in the second half. Texas A&M gets a much-needed win off of bye week before they head into a another must-win situation in Oxford against Ole Miss next week. Give me Texas A&M 34-14. Yeah, I just don't see a lot of – I don't see a lot of pass to victory here for the South Carolina Gamecocks in this one. I, I just don't. I, I just don't see a lot. But moving on to the next one, to the Plains of Auburn. Mississippi State at Auburn, 2.30 p.m. Central Standard Time Zone kick on the SEC Network. Auburn currently a six-and-a-half-point favorite. Will there be six-and-a-half points scored in this game? I was actually actually at the 3-2 game until then eight in this one. Then Mississippi State, 7-3 win over Arkansas last week. But Mississippi State comes in 4-3, 1-3 in conference. Auburn comes in 3-4, 0-4, losers of four straight. Auburn fans, I know you're disappointed after losing four straight games. Who wouldn't be? But out of those four opponents, who did you really expect to beat? I mean, at Texas A&M? No. Georgia at home? No. At LSU? No. Ole Miss at home? No. I mean, outside of Alabama, those that's your four hardest, the four hardest teams you play on your schedule. Four straight weeks. No one expected Hugh Freeze to win that game. I mean, to be honest, Hugh Freeze has not lost a game that he was expected to win yet. That changes this week. With that being said, it's time for Hugh Freeze to start making his money in year one, and that starts this weekend. These are the games that people will start to kind of have a sour taste in their mouth if he drop if he drops this one at Mississippi State at home. And I'm not talking about the people getting some Tumors Corner Lemonade. I'm not. Again, I always, always thought it – no offense to Tumors Corner Lemonade. They do fantastic business. I always thought it was a little bitter, though. I'm not talking about that. If they lose this game to Mississippi State at home, be a lot of bitterness and sour taste in people's mouth. The back half of Auburn's schedule starting this week is very winnable. Mississippi State rolls into this one with some mild confidence on their side with Zach Garnett after a 7-3 road win at Arkansas last week. It is what it is. Take the win as it is. A road win for Mississippi State at Arkansas. It's a win, guys. Build on it. But big question for me right now is Zach Garnett. Is he is he getting more involved in the defense? They played better last week. I know struggling Arkansas defense, but it's something to keep an eye on this week. Watch his many rhythms on the sideline. But the offense – on the other side of the ball with Kevin Barbe and Mike Wright. The offense this week, I'm assuming, is going to find some new wrinkles. They got a full game of film and meaningful action of Mike Wright. I'm sure they're going to add some new wrinkles, some adjustments that fit into his game to play to where his strengths and their weapons on the outside to help him. They got to get it going. They got. I think you have to let um, a guy like Tolu Griffin touch the ball more. What do they add in the game plan, though? Mississippi State in this, after going back and looking at the plan. What are the strengths? Are there any? Especially when Woody Marks is out with a hamstring injury. But must win for Mississippi State here if they want to get to six wins. It's very winnable. It's winnable. State people I know will be disappointed with no bowl game in Arnett in his first year coming back. I know it was a tough situation he took over with Mike Leach. But also, you you had a lot of talent coming back. And I know Will Rogers is banged up, but not going to a bowl game would be unacceptable. Also throw in a little caveat here. This is John Cohen facing his former school where he was the former AD at Mississippi State. I think he got hired around this time last year at Auburn. But uh, this is his first full calendar year being away from Mississippi State. First real time he's facing Mississippi State is the Auburn AD. But where this game will be won, starting off with Mississippi State, they have to convert in the red zone. It's that simple. This is not going to be a long where it'll be won for Mississippi State. Red zone appearances have to turn into touchdowns when they get there. I don't think they're going to get in the red zone often because Auburn's defense has been serviceable with defense coordinator Ron Roberts. They have. They have guys flying around in the secondary. I don't think State's going to get a lot of red zone opportunities. So when they do, they have to cash in. 
Unless State gets a defense or special team score, this will determine if State can get back-to-back SEC road wins, which would be fantastic for them. But unfortunately, Mississippi State fans, the Bulldogs rank 87th nationally in red zone offense. It's going to have to change some this week. They're going to have to have success. I think State knows that. They just need to focus. Once they get in there, have some trick plays, a delay tight end, a delay tight end play or something where, hey, he's blocking, holding off. He goes, it, it, what it always called it, what they always call it when Gus Malzahn, it was called uh, uh, Fight Song, is what he called it. It was an automatic touchdown. Randomly enough, it was. But they, nobody ever covers the tight end in the red zone on a delay, on a tight end delay. Never, never. Stuff like that. Uh, Auburn, where it'll be one for them? Coming out of the quarterback play, man. Peyton Thorne, Robbie Ashford. The more, I will say this, though, the more Jarquez Hunter touches the ball, it'll be better for Auburn. That'll open the run game up for both quarterbacks, Peyton Thorne and Robbie Ashford. They both had success against Georgia doing that. I think Peyton Thorne was a leading rusher in that game against Georgia. They can be primary runners in this offense. But State's run D isn't bad. Coming at 46 nationally, only allowing 127 yards per game. Auburn is going to try to run it. But State's going to load the box and make Auburn beat them on the outside deep. This is where Peyton Thorne and Robbie Ashford come in. State's going to put their corners on an island, similar to their game plan against LSU. State's game plan against LSU. Didn't work. State took advantage. LSU took advantage of it. I don't know if Auburn can. The Auburn quarterbacks and wide receivers are going to have to make plays to extend drives because State's front, very active front, man. Jaden Crumity, Nathan Pickering, Jet Johnson, Nathaniel Watson, Boogie Watson, SEC Defensive Player of the Week. They got a solid front seven that's active. It's not necessarily like, hey, Auburn's just going to go run right down these guys' throats. I think if I'm Zach Arnett in that defense, I'm selling out to stop the run, and I'm being like, hey, I don't think Peyton Thorne or Robbie Ashford can beat me. I know our secondary is not awesome, especially our safeties. I don't know. I don't know much about the receivers. Can guys like Shane Hooks, Jay Fair, can guys like that make plays? Can they extend plays for Auburn? But prediction time, guys. State's going to try to muck this one up. They will stack the box defensively, like I mentioned, and make Auburn make plays in the passing game. The question will be, can Auburn do that? Can the 121st-ranked passing offense in the country just this week turn it on just like that and make some plays deep? Not overly confident, but State can be had in the secondary, like I mentioned at times, especially at safety. They're 87th in passing yards allowed as a defense. The key will be Peyton Thorne, Robbie Ashford in the vertical game, turnovers, and field position. That's going to be key. The vertical passing game, who comes up with the most turnovers, who wins the turnover margin in this game, and who can win the field position consistently throughout both halves. There's a path to victory for both teams here, but I think State turns it over late in the second half, flips the momentum, and I think that's the difference. Very tough game to predict. Like I said, I could see a path to victory for either team, and it wouldn't surprise me. Give me Auburn at home, and Hugh Freeze's first must-win situation in his tenure at Auburn. Give me Auburn 20 to 13. Remember, big mo- big momentum turnover in the second half, flips it. Auburn gets the big win at home. Hugh Freeze needs it. Auburn ends a four-game skid. Give me Auburn 20 to 13. Next, I'm going to Jacksonville, boys and girls. We're going to the world's largest cocktail party, Georgia versus Florida, 2:30 p.m. Central Standard Time Zone on CBS. Georgia currently favored by 14 and a half. Georgia comes into this one 7-0, 4-0. Florida rolls into this one 5-2, 3-1. This has been a springboard game for Georgia in the past. Both these teams always have bye weeks before. Uh, like I said, Georgia coming off a bye week where they didn't really play their best the last time out. 
They've lost their best offensive weapon in Bright Bowers for a couple weeks, not for the season. But listen, Georgia has holes for sure. This isn't their 21-22 teams. It's not either team. They don't have to be this year to be a, win a championship. I hear people say that all the time. They're not as good as their 21-22. They don't have to be. This is the 2023 season. They just have to be the best team in 23, and they can be. 2023 is its own season, guys. Florida, on the other hand, is trying to build off some momentum after back-to-back wins versus Bandy in South Carolina. Now, now, is that more Florida getting better, or are those the two worst teams in the SEC East? I think that's fair. Fair argument. You can make an argument either way. But there's no sugarcoating. The South Carolina game was massive for Florida and Billy Napier to get that road monkey off their back. And they were down 10 with five minutes left, had to convert a fourth and 10 play where they made a South Carolina defender miss and picked up a first down. I think it was Arliss Boardingham that just tied in and did it. The massive momentum game for Florida. And they took it into the bye week. Did they bring it to Jacksonville? I fully believe in Billy Napier getting this thing turned around. And if you understand building a program, you should as well. Does that mean they are ready to take on Georgia and Kirby Smart only in Billy Napier's second season? I don't know. But where it'll be one for Georgia, stick with your run game, guys. Stick with your run game, Mike Bobo. Throw off play action. If you do that, I think you're going to be fine. I firmly believe Georgia can win this game with only two to three run game concepts and staying ahead of the chains. I've watched Florida, just like I've watched every team in the SEC, multiple times this year. Multiple times. Florida's a poor perimeter tackling team. Horrific, horrific perimeter. Jalen Kimber himself, the former Georgia Bulldog, he wants none of it on the edge. Will Georgia and Mike Bobo see that and try to attack the perimeter of the Gator defense? They should. Also, you get the run game going, it factors in some easy throws for Carson Beck as well as some play-action shots downfield. Now, on this, from another standpoint, Austin Armstrong, Florida's defensive coordinator, who's been at Georgia before, he's aggressive by nature. That's great. Carson Beck does not take many sacks, and if you're bringing five to six guys often, you're asking your secondary, who is not good at tackling in space, to get something or to do something they're not very good at. I mean, if they see the blitz coming, they're just flicking out, running back in the backfield. Maybe they keep it running back in as protection. They get a quick little screen going to the wide receiver. All he has to do is make one guy miss. Either it's a block or a missed tackle, and he's gone. I'm telling you, Florida is not a good tackling team. I think what's his name? The court, Brooks Scott, works for on three. He posted the worst tackling Teams in the SEC 1 through 14, where do you think Florida was? 13th, second to last in the league, worst tackling team. I'm telling you, it shows up on the film as well. Georgia can take advantage of this with just two to three running concepts off the edge. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. For Florida, where it'll be one. Call me crazy, but I think it's the same thing. I think this is an edge game. This isn't the Georgia D at 21 or 22, like we mentioned but I still don't believe you can run on them between the tackles on a consistent basis. However, I do think they are more susceptible than they've been in a two to three years being able to get run on on the edges, on the outside. Guys get sucked in, can't get off blocks as well as they have. Just like I mentioned with Florida, not as bad, but still. But can Florida get Trey Wilson on the edges with jet sweeps, incorporate Graham Murray just a little into the run game, to stay ahead of the chains and be manageable, be in manageable third down situations. That was the key. I mean, even Auburn had some success when they factored their running their quarterbacks in the run game. Now, Peyton Thorne's a little bit more mobile than Graham Mertz, but people are like, oh, Kentucky's going to go to Athens and beat them. No, because Devin Leary is not a run threat. That's going to hurt Georgia. Graham Mertz is good enough to go pick six, seven yards up. He doesn't need to be shy about that. If he can just rush maybe for 50, 60 yards, it's going to keep Georgia's defense on its heels. I should say should, will, it could. But if it's third and long, you might as well start warming up the fat ladies' vocals. 
Florida has no shot if they're in third and longs. I've watched the film, and there are ways if Florida gets creative in the run game, they can have success and get good yardage on the edges. I mean, they run these counters that are pretty creative in Billy Napier's run game with the Y and H, their two tight ends, that Florida Georgia's not seen yet. So I'm interested in that. And they'll get out on the edges. So how will Georgia guys like Chaz Chambliss take that on? How will linebackers flow in over? Will their corners tackle? Georgia's usually a really good tackling team. But teams have gotten to the edges a little bit on them this year. So this is a game of who can win the edge to me after going back and watching the film. But it's prediction time in this one. As I stated, it's going to be an edge game. Both defenses are vulnerable on the edges to some extent. Obviously, Florida more so than Georgia due to their inability to tackle the second and third levels, but even Georgia to some extent this year. But Florida ranked 13th worst tackling team in the SEC this year right now. And you see it on the film. This is another opportunity for Florida to see where they measure up in year two of Billy Napier. Do they have the weapons to stretch Georgia's defense? I mean, outside of Ricky Purcell and Eugene Wilson, Trey Wilson, which is a crazy stat here for Ricky Purcell, 73% of his catches have been first downs. That's, that's crazy to think about. So they have two guys. Can they take advantage? Can Florida's offensive line play its best game of the season as well? And maybe the best that they've seen in Napier's tenure. That's what it's going to take. They may have their moments, but I do not see them going a whole game without shooting themselves in a the foot a couple of times. Add in, I think Georgia has a field day on the edges offensively and in space against this Florida defense. And I think Georgia has a big second half to take control of this game. Would it shock me if Georgia just takes the air out of the ball at some point? Just kind of like, hey, let's just get to next week. Absolutely not, because Georgia, because Kirby Smart's been known to do that. It's been their style before. Just depends probably how the flow of the game's going for them. Florida, while improved, let's be honest, they beat Vanderbilt and South Carolina, probably the two worst teams in the East. They just aren't ready for this yet. It's not a reason to get down on Billy Napier. I think given time, given four years, he'll have it turned around. But they're just not ready for this yet. Even if Georgia isn't as good as they have been the last two years, they're just not ready for this. I know Georgia has holes, but I think Georgia pulls away in the second half for a 31-13 Georgia win. Moving on. Tennessee at Kentucky, 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time Zone kick on ESPN. Tennessee currently a three-and-a-half-point favorite on DraftKings. Set the tone. Tennessee rolls in five and two, two and two. Kentucky, same record, 5-2, and 2-2 two, two and two in the SEC. Saturday night game where both teams need wins. How do both these teams bounce back after tough losses? Now, Kentucky's coming off a bye week. They had the tough loss to Missouri two weeks ago after the fake punt they'd ever recovered. They were up 14-0, firing all cylinders. After the fake punt, it was over. I've never seen a team just totally drop off the face of the planet like that. Just momentum sucked out of Kroger Field faster than, you, faster than bourbon out of the dispensary. How is the locker room right now in Lexington? It's a big question to me. How do they handle some adversity? Adversity. Two weeks ago, they handled it poorly. They just looked like they quit after Missouri converted that fake punt. Now, going to the Tennessee side of things, can they get off the mat after a brutal second half in Tuscaloosa last weekend? This game, in my opinion, for both teams, it's the difference between going 9-3, and 8-4, and four, in my opinion. It really is because they one of these teams, the loser of this is probably going to lose another game because you got to think Kentucky still got Alabama, Tennessee still got Georgia and Missouri. I would be shocked if the loser of this doesn't lose another game. But where will this game be won for Tennessee? 
once again, as it's always been for Tennessee, especially in the road, converting red zone trips into touchdowns. The red zone offense currently ranks 67th nationally in the country in 84% conversion rate. Only 18 touchdowns, though, and 33 red zone attempts. That's not going to get it done to the level Tennessee wants to get to in the third year in the Josh Heupel program. Tennessee's red, I mean, sorry, Kentucky's red zone defense ranked 97th in the country. Tennessee has to capitalize this week because opportunities are going to be there. Once they get in there, Kentucky gives up scores in the red zone. They have to take advantage of that. They get the run game going this week. For Kentucky, where it'll be one, Devin Leary. He's the key to this game for them. Leary may be the most, so far, the most underwhelming transfer portal quarterback addition in college football when you factor in the expectations he came in with when he left NC State. And right now he's got a 54% completion percentage, 14 touchdowns and seven interceptions, but he just looks totally confused and out of his element. I saw Liam Cohen, the offensive coordinator, say this week that they needed to get the plays in faster and communicated better. I mean, you saw a play against Missouri where he just looked, Devin Leary got the call and just looked totally confused, went back to the huddle, turned around, they had to call a timeout. He just looked like he didn't understand what the play call even was, much less could be able to communicate it. That'll be interesting to see. I mean, both Mark Stoops and Liam Cohen mentioned that this week in their pressers is something they need to work on. And Mark Stoops even mentioned, like, hey, look, I know we're struggling in the passing game, which, again, surprising because they have good weapons on the outside at wide receiver. This is supposed to be one of the better Kentucky wide receiver groups we've seen at the program, between Barry and Brown, Dane Key, Tavian Robinson. But the offense just has not been able to click outside the Florida game, whether it's procedural penalties, the offensive line, the big blue ball, but not being able to block. Devin Leary struggles, drops by the receivers. Again, not all Devin Leary. The offense just hasn't been able to mesh. But Mark Soup said it this week. We're still going to work on the passing game. We're going to sling it around. We're just not going to go back to how I was three or four years ago and just take that air out of the ball and just run the football and just try to be like, hey, try to score. And you got to be able to score and have somewhat of a passing game in college football. If Kentucky wants to win this game, Devin Leary is going to have to play better, probably better than he has all year. Prediction. Tennessee has more than 30 seniors on this team. This is an older veteran team. Josh Heupel wants to keep moving this program forward. This is a bounce-back game where your seniors have to lead the rest of the team. It'd be easy to let Alabama beat you twice after last week's second half, especially you taking the show on the road to an environment where you'll once again be someone's biggest enemy. Kentucky hates Tennessee football. Tennessee always beats Kentucky. Even in Tennessee's dark days, they always beat Kentucky. Now on the field, can, can Tennessee get the running game going like it did against another solid front two weeks ago against Texas A&M? Last week, they got nothing going against Alabama. But two weeks ago at home, they did pretty well against a solid Texas A&M unit. And Kentucky's not bad either. But Tennessee's run game just, for whatever reason, has not traveled on the road this year. But a stat to keep in mind, looking at it right now, is that Kentucky's defense is ranked 104th in third down conversion defense. 43% teams are converting third down. That's not good. It's not like a normal Mark Stoops defense. I think Tennessee runs well enough to keep them in third and manageable situations, especially if Joe Milton keeps using his legs like he did last week. Kentucky is going to come out with a chip on their shoulder. We fully expect to. But Devin Leary and the supporting cast outside of Ray Davis has given me nothing to believe this is going to be it they turn around turn it around and start developing some consistency within the offensive play. I, I just don't see – I just don't see this. I mean, again, especially against another solid defense and a solid defensive front like Tennessee. I think Joe Milton looks comfortable and the volunteer run game gets going again. Balls pull away in the fourth quarter, get a 31-17 much-needed bounce-back win. It'd be a big win. Seriously, it'd be a big win for Tennessee. Difference between 9-3, and 8-4, and four, I think, for the loser of this game. But give me Tennessee – 31 to 17.
And then finally, the fifth matchup of the week, Vanderbilt at Ole Miss, 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time Zone on the SEC Network. Ole Miss minus 24.5 right now, favored by 24.5 according to DraftKings. But setting the tone, Ole Miss comes into this matchup 6-1, and 4-1. Vanderbilt coming off a of bye week, 2-6, 0-4 in the league. Have not won a game since week one. Uh, I think this game to me, when someone says the word trap game, this game sums it up. This game sums up. I think some people think trap game you could possibly lose. I don't really. It's kind of like the South Carolina AM game a little bit. I don't know if I see a real path to victory for Vanderbilt in this one, but this game does look like a trap game to me. To be fair, if you're Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss, how are you not thinking about the Texas AM and probably even the Georgia game to some extent? Lane Kiffin knows this as well and knows it'll be a challenge to get his guys going this week. It's a bring your own energy type of game, bring your own juice type of game, Kirby Smart always says. But something that should keep the Revs motivated is Vandy always plays this game close, always plays well against Ole Miss. It's their common East-West division game uh, in the last year of this with the SEC. I mean, last year, Ole Miss-Vanderbilt were tied at half before Vanderbilt went on a run with Jonathan – before Ole Miss went on a run with Jonathan Mingo to open it up in the second half. But it was tied at half. Vandy coming off a of bye week, probably their best game of the year, even though they lost to Georgia their last time out. You're going to have a nothing-to-lose attitude with Clark Lee and his staff and his team. But where will this game be won? For Ole Miss, it's going to be attacking through the air. And, look, Ole Miss may not even have to go that route. But if Ole Miss has to go that route, they are ranked the 20th in the nation in passing offense, averaging 291 yards a game through the air, while Vanderbilt ranks 117th in passing yards allowed, giving up 263 through the air. Ole Miss has a lot of options against a, Vanderbilt, a poor Vanderbilt defense. Vanderbilt's also giving up 34 points a game, I think. Ole Miss can kind of do what they want, I think. I say attacking through the air because I think where it will be one for Vanderbilt may make Ole Miss have to go through the air a little bit. But here for Vanderbilt, let's go to them real fast. Stopping the Ole Miss run game. Clark Lee, smart guy, defensive guy at heart, was the former D.C. at Notre Dame. He knows what he's doing. I mean, he knows his secondary is weak. But if they do not sell out to stop the Ole Miss run game, they have no chance to keep this game closed. Now, Vanderbilt hasn't exactly been great at stopping the run. They haven't exactly been the steel curtain D either. I mean, they're ranked 105th in the country, 174 yards on the ground per game by that defense. But Vanderbilt, that's their only chance. Load the box, force, force Jackson and Dart and the receivers like Trey Harris and them to beat you one-on-one -on -one situations. Not saying old Vanderbilt, that's they're going to win the game if they do that. That's their only hope, though. you got to load the box to stop the Ole Miss run game, which is why I said where it'll be one. Ole Miss probably attacking them through the air. Could totally see that. I mean, uh, I could see Zachary Franklin stepping up, Trey Harris, Caden Priest, Corn, guys like that. But again, Ole Miss could get the run game going. But if I'm Clark Lee and I'm scheming up Ole Miss and I have my Vanderbilt personnel, I'm going to sell it on the run. If you beat us through the air, so be it. But you're just not going to run it down our throats with Quinchon Judkins and um, Bentley. You're saying you're not going to do that. You're not going to beat us doing that. Yeah, I'm just not going to lose that way. So you're going to beat me through the air. I think Clark Lee probably feels the same. But prediction, Ole Miss needs a, needs a quick start. Needs some – need a big hit on special teams, a big hit on defense, a big turnover, a quick score right off the bat to get, get the juices, the flow going, get the energy going in Vaughn Hemingway. I could see this. I could see Ole Miss coming out a little bit sluggish after an emotional win in Auburn last week. You got A&M coming to town next week in a big game for both teams. And you got Georgia in two weeks. I mean, you're crazy if you don't think Ole Miss is looking forward to that a little bit. Fandy has proven they can score points at times. And Ole Miss struggles to defend the middle of the field regularly. 
I do think Ole Miss comes out, drags her feet a little in the first quarter, but Ole Miss should be able to muster up enough points, whether that's through the ground or through the air. Again, I think it's going to be through the air because I think Vanderbilt's going to sell out on the run to be able to separate towards the end of the first half. Give me a close game after a quarter and a half with Ole Miss pulling away and winning this game really in the middle eight. This is a game I could see Ole Miss be a tie game middle of the second quarter. Ole Miss – in the last four minutes, gets 10 points, comes out, gets a big turnover, a big score. They're up 17-24 blink before we're even in the middle of the third quarter. I could see something like that. I think Ole Miss is going to have a big middleweight moment, win the middleweight of this game. It's not going to be pretty at times. They need to bring their own juice, start fast. But give me Ole Miss 42-21. Moving on, guys. Week nine. Money-making weekend before we get you out of here. We're just under an hour. It's where we like it. Maybe just over. So, again, we went 3-7 and seven last week. It's not good enough. We want to be over 55% for the year. We're 44% right now. I got eight games for you right here. May add another one. I'll tweet them under the graphic I post uh, tomorrow afternoon like I always do. But let's get to it. First one I like this week, sticking in the SEC. Mississippi State and Auburn. I told you the line was minus six and a half, but that's not where we're going. We're going the under 43 and a half. I mean, this was Mississippi State had only scored seven points last week against Arkansas. Auburn's not really lighting up the scoreboard either. 121st score in offense. I, I totally like the under here. Under 43 and a half. Auburn, Mississippi State. I feel confident in that one. Next, we're staying in the league. It's another under, over under. Kentucky, Tennessee, under 51 and a half. I love it. I do love it. Give me the under 51 and a half, Kentucky, Tennessee. I could see this being a slow starting first half for both teams. Kentucky, Tennessee still trying to get themselves up off the mat, not clicking completely on offense. I mean, Kentucky's had their own struggles offensively consistently. I like the under 51 and a half here. Moving out of the league a little bit. I like BYU plus 17 and a half at Texas. Quinn Ewers is hurt. Malik Murphy, the backup quarterback, getting the call for Texas. BYU, an older team as they always are, tough physical team, not going to be overwhelmed going to Austin. Give me plus 17 and a half BYU here. Give me the Cougars plus 17 and a half. I like them where they're at here. They won us some money last week. They were underdogs at home to Texas Tech. And one, I like BYU here. Staying out of the league, James Madison minus 20 versus Old Dominion. I'm just riding James Madison right now. Just riding them. Old Dominion is not very good. James Madison is not going to be able to be eligible for the conference championship or going to a bowl game. They're playing like they're pissed off. Give me James Madison minus 20 against Old Dominion. App State minus 17 at home against Southern Miss. I think Southern Miss has tapped out and quit. Unfortunately, it's probably the last year for Will Hall. App State's not great, but again, it's kind of tap out season, like I mentioned with South Carolina. Where's their mindset? Your team's not very good. You know your coach is going to get fired. What's the motivation for Southern Miss going up to Boone, North Carolina to play well? I don't see it. I'm going to give up the 17 points. Give me App State minus 17. Another one, Duke-Louisville, under 46, another over-under. Give me the under 46. Riley Leonard's not going to play for Duke. Duke and Mike Elko and Tyler Santucci, the defense coordinator, do a fantastic job scheming up people defensively. They're not going to get scored on a lot. I don't see Louisville doing a lot offensively. Obviously, Duke without Riley Leonard is not going to do a lot offensively. Give me the under 46 here in this ACC battle. Uh, Michigan State-Minnesota. Another over-under. Give me the under 40. Michigan State's a total disaster. They're not doing anything offensively. Minnesota, similar to Iowa, is not scoring on a bunch of people. It's the Big Ten. Not a lot, a lot of high-scoring affairs in this conference. Classic game right here. 
the fighting flex versus a struggling Michigan State team. Give me, give me not a lot of scoring. Give me the under 40. And then finally, probably my least confident one right here, but in a must-win situation, we're going to the Pac-12. Dan Lanning and his team has to win this game on the road in a very tough environment at Utah. Utah coming off a massive win at USC last week. How Kyle Winningham keeps doing it. I think sometimes that guy could play a ham sandwich at quarterback and they would still win games against good teams. It's unbelievable. I think Oregon comes out, though, with a little bit of edge on the chip on their shoulder. Understanding they let one get away at Washington two weeks on the road. They should have won. I think Oregon comes out. Covers the minus six and a half. They may win this game by double digits. I think Oregon comes out, looks good this week. Oregon back in the Pac-12 conversation. They lose this, they're probably out of the Pac-12 race and certainly the playoff race. Dane Lanning and that team knows it. They're going to come in with an edge. I don't really say you'd shock the world because they're favored by six and a half on the road, but I think they cover this. Give me the Oregon Ducks minus six and a half at Utah. So we got eight bets. Maybe add more. Remember, pay attention to my graphic I'm going to post on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and um Instagram. But again, the eight bets I like right now on this money-making Thursday for a money-making weekend. Mississippi State, Auburn under 43 and a half. Kentucky, Tennessee under 51 and a half. BYU plus 17 and a half at Texas. James Madison minus 20 at home versus Old Dominion. App State minus 17 at home versus Southern Miss. Duke, Louisville under 46. Michigan State, Minnesota under 40. And then Oregon minus six and a half at Utah. We're getting back on track this week, guys. We're getting back on track on this week. I can promise you that. But that'll wrap up this week's episode, this week nine preview. We covered a lot. Covered a lot. We covered the, all five matchups in the conference for week nine in the SEC. We talked a little bracketology with basketball about a week and a half away. Remember, our preview show, SEC basketball preview show, will be this upcoming Monday. I'll post a graphic as a reminder. Um, what else? Talk about? Talked about some key injuries for LSU. Makai Wingo, Zai Alexander. LSU's mounting up some injuries in the back after going to play a lot of freshmen in the secondary in Tuscaloosa next week. Makai Wingo, the best interior guy, they're already a thin position for him. Could be some big losses for LSU. Kentucky A&M losing some guys, waiting on some eligibility stuff at a um, Julius Marble and then one of Kentucky's big uh, – their big men as well. Um, and then we went over the week nine money-making weekend, baby. Eight bets for you. Probably get – probably had two or three more. Pay attention to any of this. But, again, if you love this content here at Mock 10 Sports, remember I'm a former uh, DPP, Director of Player Personnel, for nine years in college athletics. Worked at four different SEC schools. Alabama's a student, Texas A&M, Auburn in Georgia. Um, feel like I know a lot, a lot of knowledge. If you like what we're doing here, it's free, guys. Like and subscribe. Review. Tell us what you want. We're on all podcast platforms. Again, you see the live show on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Again, if you like it, it costs nothing. Just please like and subscribe. Uh, but again, should be a fantastic week nine slate for us here. Starting to become that great time of year, guys. Basketball just on the horizon. College football starting to get into the nitty-gritty. We've got some big divisional matchups this week and really especially next week. But, again, I appreciate you joining us on this episode of Mock 10 Sports. You have a fantastic weekend. Keep following us on Mock 10 Sports for the best information on SEC sports. 